It's Halloween season. So, hey, all you spooky people. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to a haunted true crime exposed. Hi, everyone. Thank you for clicking on our show today and giving us a listen. If you could give us a five-star written review, if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, one thing you can do to help support us is to share us onto your social media. Tag us in a post or a story or share one of our posts onto your stories. Help us spread the word. We're glad that you're listening to us here where we strive to advocate for victims, to tell you stories that need to be heard, to give each victim exposure, and to expose the vile lurking all around us. Are you ready to get spooked today? Okay, guys, so it's October, it's spooky season, it's almost Halloween, and this is my favorite month of the year, and I know a ton of you guys feel the same. So to honor spooky season, I chose a case today where the murders committed led to a home being haunted. Do you believe in hauntings, mom, like ghosts and stuff? Yes and no. That's kind of how I am. So I I was going to say that I don't really, I always like to say I don't believe in seeing or hearing ghosts. But then I also sometimes think I say that because I definitely don't want to have that experience. Yeah. And then at the same time, I get nervous when I do say it because like, I don't want the ghosts to prove to me that they are here. <laughs> I've, like, never really had an experience with a ghost, and it and it doesn't scare me to, like... I mean, it would scare me if I was somewhere and a mean ghost did show up, but I've never had that happen, so I don't know. Oh, right. Yeah, I. it would definitely scare me to have the experience, but I have also not had it happen. So I'm crossing my fingers. I don't have it happen. But this room I record in, I don't know if you remember um, that I convinced Jacob, I think, that it's haunted. Yes. <laughs> because one day this shadowy black mark just appeared on the wall and it gave me like the heebie-jeebies. And... When I first had Willow, my baby, earlier this year, Jacob would sleep downstairs often because he didn't like to be woken up by the baby if he worked in the mornings. Plus, I felt better with the extra room in my bed, but he was downstairs one of these nights, and then all of a sudden at like 3 a.m., he wakes me up freaking out, and he's telling me how he had fallen asleep, and he woke up to it being like super muggy and wet in the room, and his iPad was turned off even though he had it playing a TV show. And so he turned his iPad back on and he says that his charger started smoking. And in that moment, he remembered that I told him about the weird black wall, the weird black mark on the wall and how I sometimes feel a little weird in this room. 
And I mean, I talk about murders in here. So he got freaked out and started running upstairs. And he said he looked behind him and swears he saw a black silhouette pass by the stairs. <laughs> and he's never slept down here again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. He's never slept down there. I didn't realize that. He has never come back down here ever again. He has dealt with the baby since then. He'd rather be woken up than experience a ghost, I guess. So I guess he does believe in ghosts. Yes. He, like, believes in everything. He says that he's had an alien experience and a haunting experience, so. (laughs) (laughs) But whether you believe in hauntings or not, I guess we never really know. So for today's case, I'm taking you back to Iowa in 1912. So on June 9th of that year, the Moore family attended their Presbyterian church and they had brought with them a couple of house guests, two young sisters that were friends with their children. Ina Mae Stillinger was eight years old and Lena Gertrude Stillinger was 12 years old. Josiah, who was 43, and Sarah, who was 39, had invited the girls to have a sleepover with their own children that night. Josiah and Sarah had four children together. Herman Montgomery was 11 years old. Mary Catherine was 10 years old, Arthur Boyd was 7 years old, and Paul Vernon was 5 years old. All the children had been in the Children's Day program at the church that night. Sarah was a part of putting the program together, and when she watched her children perform, her eyes filled with tears of happiness. Nothing can compare to the strong emotions you feel watching your own children shine their light. Once the program ended, the kids ran to their parents. Josiah and Sarah hugged their children and told them how proud of them they were. They also gathered up Ina and Lena, telling them that they did a great job. Once the program ended and the Moore family had all the children gathered up, it was time to walk home. It was already about 9.30 p.m., so by the time they arrived home, it would be close to 10 p.m. Josiah and Sarah got all the kids settled and ready for bed before heading to bed themselves. And at some point between the late night hours of June 9th and the early morning hours of June 10th, horror would fill the Moors' home. As the home fell silent and everyone drifted into their sleep, they had no idea that evil was lurking just above them. Literally, a murderer, or possibly murderers, were waiting in the attic of the Moors' home, quietly smoking a couple of cigarettes that they would leave laying up there while they waited for the family to fall asleep. Once the house grew quiet for long enough that it was assumed the family was asleep, whoever attacked them came down from the attic and walked into Josiah and Sarah's bedroom. Josiah was killed using the blade of an axe that was his, but when it was turned on Sarah, the attacker used the blunt side of this axe to beat her to death. For the rest of the murders, they would continue to use the blunt side of the axe instead of the blade, which this is such a strange fact to me. I I don't understand why they did that. Seems like it would make it harder. So they killed the, the father with the blade and then they killed the rest of them just by beating them to death. It, it's weird. Did they want them to suffer more? I mean, maybe, but then it seems like the rage was more towards the husband when we get to it so I don't know Okay. after their parents brutal killings the children were found in their bedroom and killed in the same way that Sarah had been 
again using that blunt side of the axe to beat them in the head until they ultimately died. But Ina and Lena were still in the guest bedroom, and Lena was waking up. She was hearing some disturbing sounds throughout the house, but what was it? She was uncomfortable there in the Moore's home as she was just a guest, so she did not want to get up to see what was going on. So she laid there, snuggled up next to Ina. But nothing happened for a minute. What Lena didn't know was that the attacker had gone back into Josiah and Sarah's room to continue their attack on them. Maybe to make sure that the couple was really dead. This discovery came because during the second attack, a shoe that had filled with blood during the first attack had been knocked over and the blood was spilling out of the shoe. And after this, the horrifying night continued. The attacker or attackers had waited in the attic, so they knew that there were extra guests in this home tonight, and they would go to find the guest bedroom, where they found Ina and Lena. Lena was the only one in the home believed to have been awake before her attack. Everyone else was seemingly attacked in their sleep. So Ina was killed immediately, being beaten with the blunt end of that axe. But Lena, she fought back. She was found laying across the bed sideways with a defensive wound on her forearm, which she had used to try and protect herself. But her braveness couldn't save her, and she was murdered in the same manner as the rest of the family. She was also victimized further because her dress had been discovered pulled up above her waist and her undergarments were off. She is suspected to have been sexually assaulted during her attack as she was the last one in the home to die. Oh, so she's Ina's friend? Ina and Lena are sisters and they are friends with the Moore's children. Oh, okay. Why were they? They were staying the night in the guest bedroom together. And then the four Morris children shared a bedroom upstairs. Okay. Huh. Yeah, they had to share beds, so that's probably why. Yeah, but they stayed with their sibling? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, usually in a sleepover, if you're sleeping over with your friend. Yeah. I don't know if they were babysitting them, or I don't know. It was 1912, so who knows what it was like back then. Yeah. <laughs> So once the murderer was finished with this attack and the brutal murder of eight people inside the Moore's family home, the home fell silent as they slipped into the deep darkness of the night. As morning came and the sun rose, light started to fill the home, making the horrific aftermath of the murders visible. Outside of the Moore's home, it was just another beautiful morning, though. The sunlight was shining down onto the house and the quiet outside felt peaceful to the neighbors looking out the window with a view of the Moore's home that morning. Little did they know how sinister the quiet really was. But after an hour or so of quiet that morning, Mary Peckham did start to find it strange that the family hadn't come outside to do their morning chores. Every morning that she peered out her window, they would be out there working hard around the home. And in this moment, the quiet didn't seem peaceful anymore. It felt eerie. Maybe they slept in. So she would go over to make sure their morning was going okay and ask if she could do anything to help them with their outside duties. So Mary walked over and began knocking on the door. And she waited, but there was no answer. So she knocked again, but still nothing. And then her knocking became more frantic. And with it, she started to shout. Hello, good morning. Are you guys awake in there? Are you guys okay? But there was no response. 
not even a creak of any movement inside. So Mary gets nervous. Her heart started to pound. Why did she have this overwhelming feeling that something was wrong? She grabbed the handle of the door and she wiggled it and tried to push the door in. Feeling defeated and increasingly concerned, Mary let the chickens out for the family and then gave a call to Ross Moore, who was Josiah's brother. Ross had an extra key to the Moore home, so she figured she would have better luck getting in touch with the family with his help. (laughs) Good thing for nosy neighbors. Right? I mean, obviously the times were different back then, but I don't think I would notice if, I mean... Obviously, my neighbors aren't up doing chores or anything, but... I wouldn't notice what my neighbors were doing either. I don't even know any of them. (laughs) When Ross arrived, he tried to knock and shout into the home, just as Mary had. He didn't want to barge in on the family or invade their space. They were probably sleeping or busy that morning. But his knocks were greeted with a deafening silence. Mary was standing next to him saying, see, something isn't right here. The door is locked. They must be inside. I haven't seen them this morning and no one is answering. So Ross pulls out his spare key to his brother's home and inserts it into the keyhole, unlocking the front door and walking in while Mary waits on the front porch. The guest bedroom was closest to the front door, so he cracked it open and peered in, discovering the violent scene of Ina and Lena's murders both girls laying on the bed, bloodied and clearly dead. He lost all the blood from his face, turning pale as he frantically ran out to Mary, screaming at her to call Henry Hank Horton, who was the primary police officer there in Villisca, Iowa. When Henry arrived, he conducted a search of the home where he confirmed all six family members and the two girls staying as guests had been bludgeoned to death. During this search was when Henry discovered the two cigarettes in the attic, leading to the assumption that those who killed this family had laid in wait up there after the family had returned home from the Children's Day program at the church. The axe was left laying next to the two bodies of the Stillinger sisters. And that wasn't the only thing they found in the guest bedroom. The attacker had also left a four-pound slab of bacon next to the axe. That's weird. Super weird. I don't get it. I don't either. It was just there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Very weird. So the doctors examined the bodies and determined that the murder occurred sometime between 12 a.m. and 5 a.m. They found that Josiah, the father of the Moore family, had received the most blows from the axe, as well as having the actual axe blade used on him. His face was discovered to be so badly beaten and cut up that both of his eyes were actually missing. Oh my goodness. That's sad. I know. It's really bad. So family, friends, neighbors, and their church community were devastated and shocked about the attack. The Moore family was well-liked and known to be generous and kind people among their small town community there in Villisca. Although Josiah Moore did have a few enemies. Sometimes that just comes with being a successful businessman who had created wealth for himself. The community was so shocked that crowds gathered around the Moore house by the following day and people trampled through the home, contaminating the crime scene. 
I mean, it was 1912, so there was already a big lack of forensic evidence technology anyways, and because of the mixture of these two things, police had a hard time getting a lead on this case. Oh, that's sad yeah and it'd be it would be really hard back then i don't i i honestly don't even know what kind of technology they did have in 1912 i know they had fingerprinting but Mm. that might be it yeah how would they figure it out if a big crowd was going through the house because then there was a ton of people i mean why why would that even be allowed it's just kind of weird you would think the family wouldn't want people going through yeah but maybe they didn't know i mean i'm sure they weren't at the house all day And I don't know how crime scenes were handled back then. Like, they must not have taped it off. I don't know. So the family of the sisters who were staying as guests had to be notified. And their screams will forever be remembered, piercing the air as they learned what horrific ending their daughters had endured. Mm -hmm. That's sad, huh? That is my deep fear with sleepovers. I feel like Charlie cannot have a sleepover ever because who knows what's going to happen in that person's home that night. Yeah. Poor Charlie. She's overprotected. (laughs) I'm serious. I don't think she'll be sleeping over. I try to scare her out of it so that she doesn't even ask. Oh my gosh. I'm like, you want to be away from your mom? That'll be kind of (laughs) scary. Oh my goodness. She's going to grow up being scared. A healthy amount of scare, hopefully. (laughs) Everyone wanted justice for the eight murdered in the Moore's home that night. But this case wasn't black and white. Finding a conclusion to close this case was not easy and would never happen despite the abundance of suspects. We all know that in investigations, the police start with those closest to the family, working their way out as they clear those who were obvious suspects. One family member that made it onto the list of suspects was Sam Moyer. This was Josiah's brother-in-law. Since it's explained as Josiah's brother-in-law, I assume that it's not Sarah's brother. So maybe one of Josiah's sister's husbands, if he had a sister. Anyways, Sam was known to often threaten Josiah's life, telling him and many others that he was going to kill Josiah. He had a hatred for him that was deep, but... Sam was investigated, and it was discovered that he had an alibi, leading the police to clear him of the murders. So then, investigators start to look into Henry Lee Moore. Although sharing the last name as the murdered family, he was not related to them in any way. Henry lived in the outskirts of Columbia, Missouri, with his mom and his grandma. Henry was the oldest child born to his parents, Enoch and Georgia Moore. Georgia was a nurse, while Enoch was a farmer who had also served time in the Civil War. The couple would have three other sons after they had Henry. As the children grew into their adult life, the family had to deal with tragedy and grief through loss as over the years, two of the Moore's sons and their dad Enoch had all passed away. Growing up, Henry was always known to be a strange duck. He had a huge interest in visiting different morgues because he enjoyed going to look at the dead bodies inside, which I have heard that this is a thing before. Like back in the day, morgues would display dead bodies for identification or for other reasons, and it would draw crowds of people. I know. Like it was a big thing. I would not like that. I know I listened to an episode about it on Morbid and it was all about like these morgues that would display bodies and so many people would go and look and it was like a big thing over in Europe somewhere. Uh Yeah. So 
I guess it doesn't necessarily make him a creep, but mixed in with what Henry became, it makes it creepy. Yeah. Henry also loved collecting newspapers about different crimes. He would specifically cut out clips of criminal cases that interested him. One of the clips found was a segment about Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen, who was a man hanged in a prison in London for murdering his wife, Cora Henrietta Crippen, after a party in their home on January 31st, 1910. The torso of Cora was found in their shared home, buried under a brick floor. Investigators never recovered the limbs or head of Cora. And I obviously understand the interest into criminal cases and being intrigued by them in the sense of needing to know what happened and looking into them. But it seemed that Henry's interest was a little more evil. He seemed to lean into looking up to the criminals in the clippings that he had saved. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That just, yeah, a lot of murderers keep follow their own stories right or they do and like sometimes look up to other killers and Mm -hmm. you know they'll try to copycat and things like that yeah so after henry had spent a year in prison for forgery in 1910 he was released in september of 1911 and started to write letters to 16 year old queenie nichols he was roughly 37 at this time because he was born in 1874 did you say nickels or nipples? <laughs> nickels. <laughs> N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Queenie <Okay>. Nichols. <laughs> I was like, that's a weird name. Just to be clear. <laughs> as Henry started to try and persuade Queenie to love him as he loved her, she let him know that she wasn't interested because he didn't have a home of his own. Why would she want to move into a home with him, his mother, and his grandmother? And let's be real. She was probably just using that as an excuse to get this creeper off her back. (laughs) Don't you think? She's 16. She's like, no thanks. Yeah. I don't need to move in with you. He wrote to Queenie not to worry because soon his mother's home was going to be his and his alone. And this was the motive for the evil murder of his own blood. On December 17th, 1912, Henry snuck into the home he shared with his mother. He had gone the night before and checked into a hotel in Columbia called the Central Hotel, and he did this under an alias using the name L. Smith. Once he was inside his home, he saw his mother, Georgia, who was 63 years old, rubbing some oil onto her aching joints. He quietly walked up right behind her with a rusty axe in his hand. It was an axe they actually used for handling coal. The handle was broken and it was in rough shape, but it was perfect for the evil act he was about to commit. Henry raised his hand and started to strike his mother in both the neck and the head until she fell to the floor and died laying in her own blood. His grandma, Mary Wilson, was 82 years old, and she didn't hear the commotion of the attack because she was sleeping in her bedroom. He silently walked into the dark room without waking her and struck her with the axe multiple times before she ever even had the chance to wake up. After making sure both his mother and grandmother had definitely passed away, Henry left the home and returned to the hotel he was staying at. He started washing up, trying to get all the blood off of him. 
but he was in such a hurry that he did a horribly sloppy job, leaving blood on his arms, some of his clothes, and on the bedsheets of the hotel bed. In the morning, he pretended to be coming home from his short two-day trip. He pretended that he discovered the bodies and he started putting on a big show crying out and screaming when he went to get his neighbors, the Cornelsons, who were the ones to call both the Tandy Undertaking Company as well as the police. Because of Henry's sloppy efforts and his bad acting, the police quickly discovered that he was the one who committed these murders after they did some digging and discovered what hotel he had been staying at that night. His motive was to get the deed to the house so that Queenie would accept him. In March of 1913, Henry had been convicted and sentenced to life in prison for his crimes against his mom and grandma. He was actually lucky because four of the jurors had voted for him to be hanged, but the other jurors worked on these four and ultimately convinced them to all agree to the life sentence. So this must have been a little bit different back then. It sounds like the jury got to not only convict, but also decide on sentencing I think in today's court system here in the United States, the judge is usually responsible for sentencing after getting that guilty verdict from the jury. Right? (laughs) I'm no expert in that, but it sounds right. I I mean, I know it's that way in some cases. I just, I don't know if it's that way in all. Right. That's true. I'm not really 100% sure either. When the judge agreed upon the sentence... He asked Henry, quote, is there any reasons why I should not pronounce this sentence upon you? End quote. And Henry mumbled back to him, quote, there is not, end quote. Many people were outraged that Henry was not hanged for his sentence, but at least he would be there for life, right? Well, not quite. Henry served 36 years of his sentence before the governor of Missouri at the time paroled him in 1949. Oh, wow. How old would he have been? So let's see. He was like 37, 38, probably by the time he went to jail. Well, let's see. So he's like 75. Yeah. So he would have been pretty old. Yeah. (laughs) So how does this relate to the murders of the Moore family and their two guests outside of the fact that an axe was used in both of these crimes? Well, the axe murders inside the Moore's home were not the only ones around the country at the time. There had actually been a string of axe murders that all had similar crime scenes. On September 17, 1911, two families were murdered in the Wayne home. Henry F. Wayne, along with his wife and their one child, as well as a visiting friend, Arthur Burnham's wife, along with their two children. Although Arthur himself was not there and was not murdered, so he would later on be a suspect of the murders but was never charged. These murders were committed in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and an axe was used. Remember, this was the same month that Henry Lee was released from prison from his original sentence, the one-year forgery sentence. Mm, In October of 1911, the Dawson family was killed, both parents and their one daughter. They were attacked with an axe inside their Monmouth, Illinois home. That same month, the Showman family was murdered. Mom, dad, and their three children all killed with an axe while asleep in their Ellsworth, Kansas home. Four days before the murder inside the Moore family home, a husband and wife were murdered by an axe in their home, which 
which was in Paola, Kansas. On June 5, 1912, Roland Hudson was struck by the axe along with his wife, Anna Hudson. They were both found dead the next day. And then, as we know, in June of 1912, the murder of the Moore family and the two young sisters staying the night in their home. So, a bit after Henry's incarceration, his fingerprints were sent to M.W. McCloggery, who was the investigator on the Villisca Axe murders. Henry had been released from that forgery sentence just before the string of murders started, leading this investigator to theorize that he may have not only killed his mom and grandma, he was possibly a serial killer. Many police officers and community members throughout the different cities didn't really believe this theory. While some find this to be the theory that makes the most sense, it seems that most people do not believe that Henry Lee Moore was a serial killer committing all of the axe murders around the country. But one little strange thing is that Lena and Ina's dad, the young girl's killed very last in the Morehouse murders, he said that Henry resembled a man that worked for him. Joseph Stillinger had hired help in April of 1912, just weeks before the murders at the Moore home. The man had claimed that his name was Helm, and he only worked for the Stillinger family for about one week before he disappeared. While Henry was serving time in prison for the murder of his maternal family, Joseph Stillinger took an officer with him to confront Henley Lee Moore in prison, but it has never been determined if he was the man who worked for Joseph in 1912. In 2017, a book actually came out called The Man from the Train. This book was written by Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James. The duo had come to believe there was another man who was involved in the string of axe murders and was the true serial killer of these families. Bill and Rachel theorized that this was a German immigrant by the name of Paul Mueller. Paul had actually been a suspect in the murder of the Newton family. This family had hired him on their farm in 1897. This is believed to be the first crime that started his spree, according to Bill and Rachel. Everyone around town knew Paul as the Newton's farmhand. He was short in stature, but strong and intelligent, though people did think he was quite the eyesore. He was described as dressing sloppy with little to no social etiquette. This murder had occurred in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, and Paul had fled after the murder. While the investigation went on a manhunt for him for about a year, it ended up being unsuccessful. Bill and Rachel believe that Paul is connected to many murders over the span of a decade, including the ones that some speculate Henry Lee Moore was responsible for. Bill and Rachel speculate that Paul went on to murder a family in Trenton Corners, New Jersey, which Trenton Corners is actually no longer an existing town in New Jersey, but back then it was a small town that was actually very diverse, with half the population being white and the other half being black. It was November 17th when a family was discovered bludgeoned to death in their home. This family was the Van Liu family, and they were all beaten with the blunt side of an axe instead of the blade. Although there was a man convicted and executed for this crime, Bill and Rachel believe he was killed for a crime that he did not commit. Because, of course, they believe that this crime was actually done by Paul Mueller. 
the man executed for the murder of the Van Liu family was Bob Henson, a town troublemaker that had a fight with the family about one week earlier because he had given them a stolen chicken. And then after that, the Hughes family was killed. On December 8th, 1904, neighbors looked outside to find the Hughes family home up in flames. Once the fire was put out, the four family members were found to be bludgeoned to death with the blunt side of an axe while they were sleeping. Their youngest daughter, Hattie, who was 14 years old, had signs of sexual assault in her attack. Then, the Christmas family was last seen in their Alabama home on February 7th. Before they were found, the next day, murdered inside their home by an axeman. This is yet another crime that Bill and Rachel link to who they believe to be the man on the train, Paul Mueller. Then, the murder of the Lyler family is a more well-known case because after the murder of the family by an axeman, the community lynched three innocent black men. The lynch mom had gathered eight men themselves and gave impromptu trials before letting five of the men go and hanging the three that they believed to have committed the crime. Just like the Christmas family, the Lyler family home was also set on fire before the attacker fled. The family was found bludgeoned with the blunt side of an axe. Bill and Rachel connect this crime to Paul Mueller because the home was near a railroad stop, as all of the murders they connected to him are, hence the title of the book, The Man on the Train. Interesting. I know. And what's really interesting to me is that so many of these murders are done with an axe, but the blunt side of an axe. I know. I keep wondering, like, what is the purpose of that? Yeah. And it doesn't seem like a ton of people would be thinking to do that, but I don't know. That same year, 1906, the Ackerman family was killed. If this was committed by Paul Mueller, as Bill and Rachel proposed, this was his largest body count in a single attack. Reverend Ackerman was married and the couple had seven children. All nine family members were found murdered by an axeman in their home in Milton, Florida, which was near a train stop. Then, on September 21, 1909, a family of six was murdered in Buchanan County, Virginia. The Meadows family home was set on fire before the discovery of six bodies. All the bodies were badly mutilated with an axe. However, George Meadows, the father of the family, was actually found with two bullet holes as well as signs of being hit with an axe. Ritter Lumber Mill was the largest employer in this town at the time, and remember, Bill and Rachel theorized that Paul Mueller worked as a lumberjack across the country while committing these crimes. However, Howard Little was convicted of this crime after the police honed in on him for having a bad reputation. A woman he was planning to leave his wife for, Mary Stacy, told authorities a story about how Howard gave her $20 after the murder. Authorities already believed the Meadows family was murdered due to a robbery, so they arrested Howard immediately. Which, like, when I read that, I thought, like, he gave her $20 to cover something up or, like, to say a story, but, like, no, he just gave her $20. <laughs> Which I'm sure was a lot more back then than it is now. Yeah. But it's just funny to me. But it's... Like, oh, you gave your girlfriend money? You did it. <laughs> You're guilty of this crime because you gave your girlfriend 
20 bucks. I am glad I didn't live back then because the justice system seems even more screwed up back then than it is now. Oh, man. Sounds like a lot of, I don't know, who knows, people. Speculation, and they're like, yep, I'm arresting you. (laughs) Yep. And of course, Bill and Rachel connect Paul Mueller to most of the axe murders we have already talked about, including the Kansas murders of Roland D. Hudson and his wife, Anna Hudson, as well as the Villisca murders of the Moore family and the two sisters staying the night. Bill and Rachel believe Paul killed at least 59 people in at least 14 different attacks. The murders they found across the country all rang similar in the fact that the families were usually killed by being attacked with the blunt end of an axe instead of the blade. In all these cases, the families seemed to live close to railroad tracks and they were attacked around midnight after being asleep inside their homes. The killer in these cases would cover the bodies with blankets to avoid blood spatter and cover the windows with sheets so that passerbys could not see inside. And then they would always lock the front door on their way out. A sexual motive that seemed to be pretty directed at young preteens was usually present. And as we know, the killer of the Moore family did sexually assault 12-year-old Lena Gertrude Stillinger. An American true crime writer who specifically focuses on serial killers, Harold Schechter, believes and has written that this father and daughter duo have brought forward the most logical and probable suspect in the murders committed inside the Moore home. But this is not the end of alleged serial killers that people believe could be responsible for the murders. William Mansfield is another man that is believed to be a serial killer and is connected to some of these axe murders. William was living in Blue Island, Illinois, when he is believed to have killed his wife, their new baby who was just an infant, and his in-laws on July 5th, 1914, which was two years after the murder of the Moore family in Villisca. His entire family was murdered using, of course, an axe. He ended up being connected to multiple murders, just as the other two men we've talked about, Henry and Paul. William would become a suspect in the Colorado Springs, Colorado murders, the Paola, Kansas murders, the Ellsworth, Kansas murders, and the Villisca, Iowa murders, which we have talked about all of these murders already in this story. The axe murders in Paola committed against the Showman family were carried out just four days before the Villisca murders on the Moore family. The Colorado Springs murder committed against the Wayne family and the Burnham family was carried out in an extremely similar way to the murder of the Moore family. In both cases, sheets or other cloth materials such as skirts and aprons were hung up in the windows to avoid anyone seeing in while the devastating crimes occurred. As we know, these are all the same murders that Henry Lee Moore was suspected of as well. But William was connected to even more murders. It was believed that he was also connected to multiple axe murders along the Pacific Railway between 1911 and 1912, including murders in New Orleans, Louisiana. Detective James Newton Wilkerson, who worked for the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City, honed in on William. James Wilkerson believed that William was a cocaine addict and this fueled his anger and rage. 
He pointed out that most of these murders were committed in such a similar way that the same man had to have been committing all of them. And he thought that this man was William Mansfield. James believed he had a lot of evidence against William and that he could prove that William was at each crime scene. James also knew that the murderer in each crime scene was careful to not leave fingerprints, which led James to even further believe that this man had to be William. Because William knew his fingerprints were on file at the Lavenworth Federal Military Prison. With the pressure of James Wilkerson, a grand jury opened a case against William in 1916 and had arrested him while he was working at a slaughterhouse in Kansas City. But then, before the trial was able to start, a payroll record was submitted, confirming that William was in Illinois during the murders of the Moore family, which occurred in Villisca, Iowa. However, a man by the name of R.H. Thorpe identified William Mansfield as the man he saw that morning after the Villisca murders. He stated that William was boarding a train that morning in Clarinda, Iowa, which was only about 20 minutes from Villisca, Iowa. But eyewitness testimony is always very problematic, so regardless of this witness, William was released due to a lack of evidence against him. William actually filed a lawsuit against James Wilkerson for coming after him, and he was awarded $2,225. Wow. Which, like, I mean, he at least killed his family. Yeah. (laughs) So why are we, like, giving him money and not putting him away for that? Right. I couldn't find any info on, like, if he did go to jail for that. It said he did kill his family, but... It was so long ago, it was hard to find, like, specific details on him. Oh, yeah, I bet. But regardless of this, James Wilkerson still believed William was responsible for the murders. The entire theory around William wasn't just simply that he was a serial killer. No, James believed that Frank F. Jones was the man who hired William to kill the Moore family, and he believed that Frank's pressure being a political figure, was the reason that William was released. He also believes that Frank's pressure on the case resulted in the arrest of Reverend George Kelly instead. So who is Frank F. Jones? Well, Frank was the Iowa state governor and he was living in Villisca, Iowa. Frank had this long history with Josiah Moore that had turned hateful over the many years. He first met Josiah when he hired him to work for his implement store. After Josiah was a loyal worker for about seven years, he decided to branch off and pursue a store of his own. He had bigger dreams than just simply working to pay someone else's bills. With this, Josiah had taken a lot of business away from Frank. Many people had come to love Josiah as he had been the face of Frank's business for years. And since he was the one person they were communicating with, they decided to stay loyal and follow him. One of these business deals was a large one from the John Deere dealership. This was enough to send Frank over the edge with jealousy and rage. But this wasn't the only cause of tension between the two. Rumors had been flying around Villisca for a while before the murders. Rumors that Josiah Moore was actually having a torrid affair with Frank Jones' daughter-in-law, Donna Jones, who was the wife of one of his sons. 
She was known in town to have numerous affairs and would always call these different men on the telephone. Back then, all calls actually had to be made going through an operator that connected the two. Though these could have just been small town rumors, there was no evidence to prove it. It may have been just enough for a motive to murder. It is reported that the two men would cross the street to avoid each other if they ever made contact because they hated each other so much. Did Frank commit this murder himself? I mean, it did seem very personal towards Josiah Moore. As we know, his murder was the only one that was done with the blade of the axe, and he was attacked a second time after he had already died. We know he was attacked so severe that his eyes were missing. This does seem to me like a lot of rage was present here. After the murders, the town split depending on what church organization they were a part of. We know that the Moors attended the local Presbyterian church, while Frank was known to attend the Methodist church. But some theorized that Frank Jones wouldn't want to get his own hands dirty. And this is why it's theorized that he hired William Mansfield to do the dirty work and pressured the system to release William after he was arrested because he feared William throwing his name out there in connection. Once William was released, focus shifted in the case onto Reverend George Kelly. George was a strange man, someone we would describe as a big-time creeper. He was reported to have mental breakdowns during his teen years, and then once he became an adult, he was accused of peeping on young women and asking multiple girls to pose nude for him. Yeah, which, like, pose nude, like, for what? <laughs> Did you say reverend? Yes, he ended up becoming a traveling minister and traveled across the country. So he must have gone, like, church to church, which is probably a pretty, you know good job for creep especially back in those days where like communication i'm sure was like a lot harder across state lines and stuff yeah so george had come into town and stayed in Villisca for two nights he arrived on june 8th 1912 one day before the night of the murders when he arrived he started working with the children's day services in the presbyterian church Remember, the Moore family and the two sisters staying in their home that night had attended the church that same night that they were murdered, performing in the Children's Day program. George then left town between 5 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. on June 10, 1912. He left just hours before the bodies were discovered. Remember, doctors determined the murders to have happened between midnight and 5 a.m., on June 10th. Yeah, but I thought the guys were waiting for them when they came home. So I wonder if he left early. That is what the police... That Yeah, that's what the police theorized because of the cigarettes in the attic. I mean, they could be wrong about that. True. Or he could have gotten to their house before. That is a little weird thing. I would, I would say the police probably either have to be wrong about that or it wasn't him, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But during the weeks after the murders had occurred... George started showing a big interest in the case. He started writing letters to the family members of the deceased and even started writing to the police and the investigators. So investigators started to use this to their advantage. George clearly wanted to talk about the murders, so the investigators wrote to him asking if he knew anything about the case. 
And oh, he did. He wrote them detailed information about the murders, saying that he heard sounds that night and maybe even witnessed the murders. But we know that cloth material was hung up over the windows, preventing anyone from seeing in. Investigators knew that George had a bad history with extreme mental illness. So they questioned if he was truly recalling the murders because he had committed them or if he was simply imagining how the murders would have happened if he did do them. One thing that stands out to me is that the scene in the Moore home that night did seem to resemble someone who was very frenzied and in a terrible mental state. Remember, that slab of bacon was found in the guest bedroom. That's weird. There was also a jug of milk found at the bottom of the staircase. That's weird. There was a plate of food on the table and a water that was filled with blood. That's weird. So, I mean, I we could assume that the murderer was in a bad mental state. Well, yeah. Which you probably have to be in a bad mental state to ever murder, but this was a little more frenzied. Two years after the murders inside the Moore's home, George was arrested, but not for murder. He was arrested because he was sending obscene things through the mail system and was harassing a woman who had applied for a job as his secretary. Once he was arrested, he was sent to St. Helens Psychiatric Hospital, which was in Washington, D.C. After his arrest, investigators circled back around to George again, still suspecting him of the axe murders in Villisca, Iowa. Three years after this, in 1917, they finally arrested George Kelly for the murders of the Moore family, as well as Ina May and Lena Stillinger. George initially confessed to the crime, but later on recanted his statements. Statements like how he killed the family because God whispered in his ear that night, suffer the children to come unto me. His first trial ended in a hung jury. And when he was tried a second time, he was eventually acquitted because jurors did not believe his confession. They must have just thought he was a crazy man who wished he had been the one to murder Josiah, Sarah, Herman, Mary, Arthur, Paul, Ina, and Lena. Still to this day, the murders in Villisca, Iowa have never actually been solved. Many theories could fit the narrative of the crime, but we don't actually know who did it. These eight people never received justice. Only speculation has ever been made in this case, so it's up to you to decide. Who do you think is the most probable suspect in this case? What do you think? Wow, I don't know. That one's hard. I know. I kind of think, I like go like, oh, I kind of think it's like Frank Jones. Uh-huh, I see the train. No, Frank Jones was the one who had a history with Josiah who employed him. Oh, yeah. And then I kind of think it's George Kelly. And then I kind of think it's Paul Mueller. So I, I can't decide because a lot of them make sense to me. Some of them don't, but. It's too bad that they didn't have better technology to figure out crimes back then i know it is because it's sad that this was never solved and it seems that there was a crap load of murders by axe back then i know like why are so many families being murdered with an axe and the blood side yes so like that's what leads me to be like well was it a serial killer yeah because that's so weird i know but then part of me thinks it's the people that were like by them that night or who knew them for years 
It's very hard to decide. It is, yeah. But the home, it still stands today, with a big sign outside reading, The Villisca Axe Murders House, June 10th, 1912. It's a white home. It looks like a cute old home, probably just what you're picturing as a home in this time of history. And they have made this home into a ghost tour. You can go to their website, which is www.villiscaiowa.com, and see that they have options for overnight stays as well as tours of the home. Well, I hope they cleaned it. Yeah, I think they did. (laughs) It has an outhouse in the backyard, which confirms that this home isn't made for use in the 21st century. It tells a story based in another era. One account on their site states how a person first visited the house back in 2009, in June. Since then, this visitor has returned many times for overnight stays and is hooked on the house. He has asked the children by name to turn his flashlight on and off, and he claims that they did it. He states in here that he has gotten many EVPs, both residual and live, which is an electronic voice phenomenon, an electronic recording where the voices are interpreted as spirit voices. All the paranormal experiences he had were in either the blue room, which was the guest room that Ina and Lena were murdered, or the bedroom where the four more children were killed. Cold spots are present throughout the house that are unexplainable, and this reviewer said that this house is definitely haunted. A quote from his statement reads, quote, I believe there are many secrets embedded within the town of Villisca concerning the axe murders that may never be revealed. In closing, I am glad I discovered the the Villisca axe murder house as a paranormal investigation hotspot and a place to remember the victims as well, end quote. I read an account from one man who spent the night there and vowed to never go back into the house. Whatever happened that night completely spooked him. (laughs) However, a couple years later, he did return, but not for the overnight stay. He would only do a daytime tour, which felt a lot less creepy. Uh, I don't think I could do an overnight. I don't think so either. But then it's like... I don't know. I just don't know if I believe ghosts stay around and haunt. Well, maybe we should go do an overnight and see. (laughs) Well, we went to that place by our house where... I know. That wasn't that scary, but I think it's because we met Shannon's cousin. (laughs) He was our tour guide. Yeah. But I know I haven't had that experience either. But then it's like, maybe if you stayed overnight in a house like this, you would. Yeah, but do you just creep yourself out? You could. I know. But I don't know. I guess many guests will leave toys in the children's rooms or balls around the house for the children to play with. Martha Lynn is the owner of the home and she has a picture that was taken by a tour goer of one of the balls left. And it looks like there's a ghost and it looks like there is a ghost orb that was captured in this picture. One picture I did see of like a group that visited, they were all laying on the ground pretending to be dead in front of the sign outside, which I thought was in poor taste. A place like this house is definitely controversial. For me, I would be interested to visit places like this to learn the history and kind of feel that eerie and heartbreaking feeling of standing right where something so horrific had happened but I don't really agree with poking fun at the situation or joking about it because this was a long time ago, but it was a real family and these were real children that were brutally murdered in this home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd be joking about it. 
me either. It's too sad. That's one way to get a ghost to go after you. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, it's like so sad. I couldn't even make light of it. Well, I'll find a place for you and you can go try and overnight. I'm definitely not going myself. A ghost comes and gets you. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I found an article from the New York Daily News, and it was written by Sasha Goldstein, and it talks about Robert Larson Jr. So he's a paranormal investigator that decided to book an overnight stay at the Villisca Axe Murder House in November of 2014. Police would receive a call that same night that Robert stayed here around 1245 a.m. that a man had stabbed himself. Robert had multiple stabbing injuries that were self-inflicted. The owner of the home, Martha Lynn, was devastated by this occurrence. She had purchased the home in 1994 with her husband that has now passed, and she's never had an incident like this happen, although she has hosted many paranormal investigators and people looking for a thrill. She stated to the New York Daily News, quote, It's kind of shocking to wake up and hear that someone has nearly died at your tourist attraction. I'm absolutely sick about this. I'm practically in tears. I can't imagine why somebody would do something like this to himself. End quote. So what led Robert to do this? Was he led by spirits or overcome with the fear of being in the home? Was it the ghost? Right. Was the ghost there causing him to have a mental break or did he go there and do it on purpose? I don't know. But it's 109 years later. The house still stands. The citizens pass by with that sign right in their face all the time. The Velisca Axe Murder House. Knowing that this case was never solved. That six children and two adults suffered horrific deaths and no answers were ever found to be concrete. Did their murderer go on to kill more? Or did they just go on to live the rest of their life without consequence? This mystery will forever haunt the town of Villisca, Iowa. I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser, and it's going to be the funnest thing ever. Do you like candy corn? I love it. Did you know it wasn't always called candy corn? It was first called chicken feed, because everyone fed chickens corn, and candy corn looks like corn. The box had big rooster on it. And that's the story about candy corn. Bye. Have a good day. Thank you guys for listening today. Like I said in our intro, please share this story with your friends and onto your social media. Go leave us that five-star review because it will help us out more than you know. If you have any case suggestions, please email them to us. Also, if you have any spooky or crazy stories that have happened to you or that you know of in your hometown or something that you want to tell us about, 
also email that to us. When we get enough, we will be doing an episode all about you, your stories, what you have to say. It will be super fun and we can either keep your name anonymous or you can leave it for a shout out. You can do all those emails at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com and definitely follow us on social media for pictures and information on each case that we cover. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimexpod, truecrimexpod. You can find us on TikTok at truecrimeexposedpodcast or on Twitter at truecrime underscore pod. This podcast is written, hosted, edited, and researched by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom, Alicia Jenkins. My daughter, Charlie Waters, gives us our palate cleanser every single week. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Stick around so that you can get information on an organization that you can be a part of. Since the main part of our story today was out of Iowa, I chose to do an Iowa nonprofit. The Crime Stoppers of Central Iowa is a nonprofit organization that provides the public in Central Iowa financial incentives to anonymously assist in solving crime. They are a useful tool for law enforcement to gather critical information to assist in solving crimes. So all the money they pay out in rewards is actually fundraised by the program. Tips that have come into Crime Stoppers of Central Iowa have resulted in hundreds of arrests. You can call and be completely anonymous and leave tips about murder, robbery, rape, assaults, drug, or firearm offenses. Email them at info at crimestoppersofcentraliowa.com. Search them if you want to donate or become a volunteer. <laughs>